What's up, Theologizers? We are back and better than ever or worse than ever or maybe the exact same as we were last time. I have no idea, but we're here for episode five. Ben, how you doing? I'm doing gravy. It's a scorching hot summer day here in upstate New York. How you doing, Tits? Doing pretty good. It's extremely hot down here, sweating my you-know-what off. But it's been a good Sunday. Church service was good. Uh, had a little brunch with some friends, so... Little brunch. Little brunch. It's been good. You know, got, got to get my brunch on, you know. Sunday fun day. Mimosas for the Lord. Yeah, I'll take the all-you-can-drink mimosas. Thank you, sir. <laughs> okay, anyway, so on this episode, we are going to finally dedicate an episode to one of the works of George MacDonald. You want to remind our reader, our readers, listeners really quick, Brett, who the man George MacDonald is, was? Yeah, so George MacDonald, um, again, lived in the uh, mid to late 1800s. He was a Scotsman, theologian, preacher, writer, all around good guy. Me and Ben both discovered him uh, the last number of years and have just really taken to his his writing style and his um, commentary on the Christian faith. And he's just um, a sage wow. yeah. of enlightenment, of, of who Christ is, what it means to be a Christian, the hope that we have with our faith. Um, again, he, he's from Scotland. He uh, wrote many fictional works, wrote many fairy tales, uh, novels, short stories, sermons, uh, theological works. Uh, and he was a, a big influence, like we've said in past episodes on a number of the 20th century's biggest Christian thinkers like C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton, among others. You have anything to add, Ben? I think that pretty much covers it. I guess uh, two other kind of noteworthy things about him. He was close friends with Lewis Carroll. Oh, yeah. Um, and the writer of Alice in Wonderland, right? Yeah. And really encouraged him to, to try and publish that. And he was also a staunch universalist and anti-Calvinist. Blasphemy! But it is heresy! Anti-Calvinism. And if anybody's listened to our second episode, you know what we think about Calvinism. So George McDonald's on the right side of the fence on that issue for a show. Um, but today we're going to be uh, discussing one of his uh, short stories, one of his short fairy tales called The Light Princess. You know what, me and Ben, we love our princess stories and we're not ashamed of it, you know? True. and all um, <laughs> It actually really is a, a great story and just so, so well written. The Light Princess came out in uh, 1864. It drew a lot of inspiration, according to Wikipedia, from Sleeping Beauty. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what Wikipedia says. And I actually recently read it in a collection of uh, fairy tales um, that Ben got me in a book, all George MacDonald fairy tales. And, and one of them was uh, The Light Princess. So I had read that recently and uh, Ben had to. We both really enjoyed it and thought it was actually pretty profound in a lot of ways. It's just a beautiful story. We'll get into the details. So yeah, The Light Princess is the story by George MacDonald we will be discussing today. And again, George MacDonald wrote a lot of theological works. He was a pastor. You know, he wrote a lot of nonfiction and just wrote a lot on the Christian faith. But he also, um, I think, is more so known for his fictional works and his novels and his uh, fairy tales. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess let's dive into giving a kind of brief summary of The Light Princess. Opens up kind of typical fairy tale 
style in a uh, nondescript kingdom. A king and his his wife, the queen, still hadn't had any children, but the king, um, as he said, as a matter of state, thought he needed, his wife needed to provide him with a child. And so after a long time, she finally gives birth to a baby girl. And the king's sister is a very wretched creature is in fact a witch who's kind of distanced from the rest of the family because of how wretched and witchy she is. And so kind of to take revenge on her brother, the king, she uninvited comes to the christening of the baby, the royal christening, and she puts a hex on the water that they're about to use to christen the baby. She puts a spell on it, unbeknownst to everyone. And so after the baby is christened in the water, they soon find out that after the witch leaves and everything and the nurse is taking care of the baby, what the hex has done has made her lose all of her gravity. So the baby girl, the light princess, um, hence the name, is very light and she just kind of naturally will float to the ceiling. She has to be held down or she doesn't like fly into outer space or anything, but kind of like on the moon. She kind of bounds around. She's very prone to being swept away by the wind, can easily float, these sorts of things. So that was the curse that the witch put on the child. And so as she gets older, they also realize that another part of the hex is that she's emotionally light as well, to a fault, where everything is just humorous to her. And she laughs at everything. So even in serious moments or when she, they're trying to reprimand her or whatever, all she can do is just take things light. So she both physically is lacking in her gravity, but she also emotionally and mentally has no gravity. She can't experience the weight or the seriousness of anything around her. So do, do you want to continue from there, Brett? Sure. So she grows older over time and uh, eventually becomes a 17-year-old girl. And still there's been no progress with her lightness. She still floats around. She still is very light of spirit. She's always giggling and laughing at everything, despite even things that are of a serious nature. Uh, again, she, she just can't take anything seriously because she is light inside and out. So that all the issues with that are have persisted over uh, her adolescence and teenage years. And at a point in the story, uh, George McDonald tells us that she really takes to this majestic lake that's outside of the castle that borders the kingdom. She accidentally uh, falls into the water uh, one day when the king and queen are having a party out on the lake with a bunch of boats and barges and she comes to realize that she loves the water because it's it actually uh, makes her feel somewhat heavier it makes her feel more normal uh, when she's in the water so she ends up loving to be in the water because it makes her feel like she has uh, weight you know that she feels like a, a normal person like everyone else and she's not just not floating about <laughs> with every gust of wind so the king and queen start allowing her just to spend time daily in the lake she goes out there and just plays in the lake swims around and she just she just loves being in the water more so than being on land and uh one day there's this uh young prince who is wandering uh, throughout the countryside. He's from a, a kingdom, it says a, a thousand miles away, and he's venturing off to find himself a suitable princess. And he's he hasn't been able to find a princess who meets his standards in any of the other kingdoms that he's come across. And he is just out in the woods and eventually makes his way on accident to the edge of this lake that borders the kingdom where the, the light princess lives. 
And when he gets to the edge of the lake, he sees the light princess in the water and he thinks that she's drowning or something. So he immediately dives in and swims over and brings her to the bank. And she gets upset at him because obviously she wasn't drowning. She was just enjoying herself in the lake like she does every day and kind of reprimands him. McDonald says that he falls in love almost immediately with the princess, despite her <laughs> lightness of spirit and her giggling and her reprimanding him for taking him out of the lake. She actually is pretty rude to him initially. He still falls in love with her uh, immediately. And they start this sort of uh, friendship. Um, he says that she kind of explains the issues that she has, that she, she doesn't experience gravity. He eventually comes to find this out. And he ends up like holding her, carrying her to like different ledges on the lake and like jumping in so she can feel the sense of falling. And she she loves that. And, and they just end up having this friendship. But they're kind of on two different pages. He's fallen deeply in love with her. And she, of course, she can't take anything seriously. So she just uses him as kind of a superficial play partner, you know, in the water. And that's about it. You know, <laughs> in reality, she could take them or leave them there's this big um difference in in the way that they see each other but they still spend time together nonetheless um in the meantime uh this this witch the king's sister sees that she's having fun in the lake and it, it just angers her because she put this curse on her to bring sadness and bring uh just a heaviness to the the family and to her and, and trying to get her revenge on her brother, on the princess, but she's not satisfied because the princess is enjoying her herself too much each day in the water. So she decides to go down to her chambers under the castle and then takes this 100 door. Well, so what she does first is she formulates this plan that will unfold here in a second. But the kind of instrument of this plan is she, uh, in her cauldron and with some spells, she creates this hugely long snake, this like gray, ugly snake. Yeah that she kind of creates with a spell. And like you're about to say, Brett, she then takes this snake through a, down from her cellar through a hundred doors <laughs> that she has to unlock with individual keys, George McDonald says, all the way under the earth that leads all the way under the lake into this huge cavern where there are these big, you know, natural rock pillars that are holding up the bottom of the lake in this huge underground cavern. And what she does is she, um, she kind of lets up the snake who kind of hovers as she's holding its tail, it is very long. It kind of hovers up to the top of the cavern, which is the bottom of the lake, and starts to suck on a rock there. As you can see, George McDonald's very creative yeah. <laughs> his stories. There's a lot of very interesting visuals, which yeah, I and, like. And there's a lot of wit, and uh, the, I mean, the story a lot of wit. is way more, you know, colorful and interesting mm -hmm. than we can give in this summary. So as a side note, you can find free, a free audio book of it on LibriVox. There are also free versions of it, uh, just you can find on Google if you want to read it. It's not that long. You can read it in a, in a... It's like an hour and a half audiobook. Right. So the snake is sucking on this rock at the bottom of the lake, top of the cavern, for a long time. And then finally, it kind of shrivels and gets really tired and has to come down. And you see this one single drop of water. The snake has managed to suck through the rock. And so the witch kind of realizes, oh, this is going to take way too long. She gets impatient with her own evil plot. And she comes up with a different spell. And she, she hexes her own water and goes around the border of the lake, perimeter of the lake, and casts another spell on the lake. 
that's supposed to make it drain a lot faster. Anyway, so yeah, so she casts this other spell in the lake, and um, as you might have guessed, her plan ultimately is to drain the lake of all of its water to deprive the Light Princess of her kind of one joy in life. So she does that, and the lake does start to very slowly recede in its depth. And one day, the Light Princess, while she's out swimming with the prince in the lake, she starts to notice this. She all of a sudden feels a panic because she notices, she's so familiar with the lake, she notices any slight difference. And she goes over to the rocks near the shore and is inspecting them and so forth. And the prince has no idea what's going on. And she kind of in a fit of being really upset about what she realizes has happened. She just kind of swims away and goes back to the palace into her room. And the, again, the prince doesn't know what's going on. From that time forward for a while, the princess basically in kind of despair that her lake is draining, lays in her room and doesn't come back out, have their usual kind of play dates with the prince. So the prince is just kind of out there waiting and he eventually discovers what, what is going on and realizes that upheaval in the kingdom, because the king has realized, because the light princess has told her that the lake was draining. But there are some people uh, that were out swimming in the, in the kind of draining lake one day, some kids that noticed in one of the pools that there is a little golden tablet at the bottom of one of the pools, at the bottom of the lake. And what the tablet said, it said, death alone from death can save. Love is death and so is brave. Love can fill the deepest grave. Love loves on beneath the wave. And so they all think this is really enigmatic. They're not sure what to make of it. But then they turn the plate over and there's a bit of explanation. Oh, kind, of, <laughs> kind of a humorous moment. And what it says in the back of the tablet is, if the lake should disappear, they must find the hole through which the water ran, but it would be useless to try to stop it by any ordinary means. There was but one effectual mode. The body, body of a living man could alone staunch the flow. The man must give himself of his own will, and the lake must take his life as it filled. Otherwise the offering should, would be of no avail. If the nation could not provide one hero, it was time it should perish. So they bring this to the king and they kind of send out a call, right, for any noble young man who wants to be the one to sacrifice his life <laughs> by plugging this hole at the bottom of the lake and helping to fill it up. They can't find anyone. And of course, eventually the prince realizes this is what's going on and volunteers himself to the king. The king doesn't really know who he is. The prince has been kind of posing as a shoe shiner, basically, for the princess to try to get a word in with the king. Um, but he's like, well, there's no one else that can do it. So the king decides to let the prince sacrifice himself to kind of stand in this hole at the bottom of the lake. And through this trusting in the tablet, basically, that if he does so and the lake fills up and he dies in the process, then the lake will be permanently restored. And do you, do you want to finish off the, uh, the story from there, Brett? Sure. So the king um, lets him ha have a good last meal and then <laughs> wastes no time and brings the prince down to the hole. But forgot to mention that the, the prince makes a deal with the king and says, the only way I'm going to, the reason I laugh is because the king has no time for this deal, but the prince eventually gets it done. But he says, the only way that I'm going to plug the hole and sacrifice myself for the good of the kingdom to save the lake is if you tell your daughter, the princess, to come down with me so that I may gaze upon her as the water rises, as I slowly wait my fate. Again, he's the prince is so in love with the princess. This is what makes the decision one that he can bear is two thoughts. The, the first thought is the fact that he'll be able to gaze upon her beauty as he dies, which would make death more bearable. 
And the other one is to know that she will have her lake back and will be happy in the future if he's to sacrifice himself. So the king agrees. Um, they go down to this hole. The prince gets in it in a very uncomfortable position. And the princess comes down too, but doesn't pay him any attention. She doesn't even like look at him. She just like, she's. they put her in a little boat with some shade and some food. And, and she just hangs out, not really even knowing who the guy is. She's so distant. <laughs> she's just like, okay, whatever. No, she does. Um, she, does she she recognizes him when she when she comes up. Oh, you're right. You're right. So she recognizes him, but still doesn't really pay him much attention the whole time, even though she knows that he's the the same prince that's been spending all the time with her, and they've been playing in the lake together. She just doesn't care. Again, she's very light of spirit, light of emotion. So anyway, the water slowly starts to rise on the prince. It's working. He's plugging the hole. The lake is slowly coming back. And then eventually he gets very uncomfortable because the water is beginning to get higher and higher on his body. He's becoming more comfortable in the position that he has to kind of stand in to plug the hole. Can I quickly interject? So yeah. Towards the end there, as the water is, is coming up, he recites this poem, and I just thought I'd read the last part of it. I thought it was, was really beautiful. He's reciting this poem to the light princess, and it says, Lady, keep thy world's delight. Keep the waters in thy sight. Love hath made me strong to go, for thy sake, to realms below, where the waters shine and hum, through the darkness never come. Let, I pray, one thought of me spring a little well, thee, lest thy loveless soul be found like a dry and thirsty ground. It's a very beautiful poem. And you, you start to feel for the prince who is pretty much slowly drowning, reciting his love for the princess and the princess still just taking no heed of the weight of the situation of the sacrifice that that he's in the midst of making. And then the water eventually rises up to his mouth and his nose. He begins to to drown. And, and the princess looks at him and sees death coming upon him, sees the weakness in his body. Then all of a sudden, the light switches in her. And she realizes what's happening, that the love that he has for the sacrifice he's making. And, and she starts to panic because she she realizes that he's, he's, he's going to die if, if, if something's not done. So the thought of saving the lake, all the selfish things that she thought about, you know, just all I care about is the lake being restored. I don't care how that happens. All those thoughts go to the wayside and she jumps into the water to save the prince. And, okay, can, uh, can I quickly add something that we forgot to mention really quick? Yeah. So Earlier in the story, there are these two kind of funny characters, Humdrum and Kopikek, who are these two yeah. Eastern metaphysicians that are trying to diagnose with their different philosophical medical perspectives what's wrong with the princess. And that's all entertaining scene in itself. But the one thing they, they keep arguing, but the, the thing they finally agree on as maybe the only solution is because they realize she loves the lake and the water, is well, maybe if water through tears could could rise up within her maybe that would restore her so she'd have her own internal source of weight so if maybe she could be made to cry maybe that would restore her gravity so now back to this scene she still hasn't cried yet but she is now panicking and kind of starting to realize she needs to save the prince. So she dives in, gets him out of the hole and swims to shore. Again, she is still a light princess. So the fact that she does that is a huge feat in and of itself. But it just it goes to show you the complete 180 that's happened in her, that she found the inner strength to save the prince. Once she realized 
you know, what was actually happening. And uh, they bring the prince that she tells the servants who meet them on the shore to bring the prince back to her chambers and call for the doctors, nurses and to nurse him back to health. And Ben, I'll let you go ahead and finish it. Yeah. So for all intents and purposes at this point, he's dead or might as well be dead. Basically, he's laying in the room. They're trying to attend to him. Nothing's working. But then finally, and I'll, I'll read from this part as well. As dawn is rising the next day, as, as dawn is coming on, the prince wakes up, kind of revives. And then it says this. The princess burst into a passion of tears and fell on the floor. There she lay for an hour and her tears never ceased. All the pent up crying of her life was spent now and a rain came on such as had never been seen in that country. The sun shone all the time, and the great drops which fell straight to the earth shone likewise. The palace was in the heart of a rainbow. It was a rain of rubies and sapphires and emeralds and topazes. The torrents poured from the mountains like molten gold, and if it had not been for its subterraneous outlet, the lake would have overflowed and inundated the country. It was full from shore to shore. But the princess did not heed the lake. She lay on the floor and wept. And this rain within doors was far more wonderful than the rain out of doors. So thus she, crying, finally fully regained her gravity with the prince revived. It's kind of a happy ending. They're immediately betrothed. And the prince slowly has to train her to get used to her gravity because she still doesn't really know how to walk because she's been kind of floating around her whole life. So I'll read a little bit from that as well here says, it was a long time before she got reconciled to walking, but the pain of learning it was quite counterbalanced by two things, either of which would have been sufficient consolation. The first was that the prince himself was her teacher, and the second that she could tumble into the lake as often as she pleased. Still, she preferred to have the prince jump in with her, and the splash they made before was nothing to the splash they made now. So then it's a happily ever after there with the prince helping her to discover and work within her newfound gravity. And again, a torrential rain pour, blessing the kingdom poured, and everyone lives happily ever after. So that is the overview of The Light Princess. There's a lot packed into this short fairy tale. There's a lot of, a lot of beautiful themes in there. And as in a lot of George MacDonald's works, there's a lot of uh, Christian themes because he was a devoted man of faith. Ben, what was one of the first things that stuck out to you as you read the story, or even just George McDonald's writing style as a whole? Like, why did you choose this fairy tale to be the one to talk about? It obviously made an impression. Yeah, I mean, again, at the surface level of reading it, it's just a very enjoyable story. Um, the way George McDonald writes and communicates, it's never cumbersome. Yeah, agreed. It's always, um, it's never cumbersome, but it's also never without poetry and turns of phrase and stuff within each sentence. Yes. A lot of wit. Yeah, to me, when you're reading George MacDonald, it's almost like no sentence is wasted. Every word and every sentence you read is almost like, and you could probably say this about a lot of writers, but I, I feel it personally, and I'm not a huge reader. But I feel personally when I read George Battle, it's almost like a sip of wine. It's just the way he turns phrases. It's it's the wit. It's just the way he structures a sentence. Or and one thing that I love, one thing that I think he's great at is dialogue. 
is the personalities that jump off the page of all the characters. You totally get to know these characters by the way George McDonald makes them speak. I find myself smiling and laughing every five or 10 minutes as I'm reading George McDonald because it's almost the type of wit that still holds like a weightiness to it a little bit too because you're seeing something so familiar in a personality or in a funny quirk or something or even someone's like flaws the way George McDonald shows us those flaws. It's almost like this, I'm laughing at it but i'm also just like deeply appreciating it at the same time yeah there's just a lot of uh, layers yeah for, so for me in this story one thing that kind of made me laugh at myself and my own world was because i study philosophy i work in philosophy was the silliness of the debates between these two quote-unquote metaphysicians humdrum and uh copy clack or yeah <laughs> copy clack like oh one is one is a materialist, quote unquote, and the other is a quote unquote spiritualist. And they have yeah. their own pet theories and they're like, no, 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 you're wrong. It's definitely like this. And it's just very, very humorous. Yeah. So he's definitely really good at capturing the, the humor of different kinds of people and different kinds of personality and relationship. Or the dynamic between the king and the queen is like that as well. But so I guess the biggest theme, the most overarching theme of the story is this idea of lightness versus gravity or weight. So I, how did you interpret that theme, that kind of broad overarching theme? What do you think lightness is meant to, if anything, symbolize in a way? I guess the way I interpreted it is like, one isn't all bad and was one isn't all good. That the human experience is kind of a play between lightness and heaviness. And that play is what makes all the complexities of our, our life and of our relationships and of our experience. And that both are needed and both are required. Sometimes lightness can get tangled up with heaviness and very intimately. And, and you don't know where one begins and the other ends. And the way he writes is, is even in his writing, ironically, it's there's some lightness is always right next to a, a more profound moment or they're, they're kind of working together. So the fact that the princess is devoid of anything weighty or heavy is a huge deprivation because you need both. Both at play is the beauty of life. And if you lose one or the other, then you're not complete. You see that most obviously in The White Princess. She can't take anything seriously. And you see it in a little bit more of a humorous way with her relationship with her parent. It's like her parents, you know, are, t are relaying things that are happening out, like when the army of the kingdom is out and people have died and they're, they're telling her what happened and she can't take it seriously. She just giggles at it. So you kind of see it in that way with, with her relationship with her parents, but you see it in the most profound way with her relationship with the prince because he um, develops this just devoted love for her. And he's constantly trying to express that love, the weightiness of that love, the deepness, all accumulating in the last scene when he's sacrificing himself for her. And she can't take it seriously. And because she doesn't take it seriously, she doesn't even, she has no attachment to him or no attach. She doesn't even know what it means, the love that she, he has for her. So you see that deep deprivation in her, but at the same time, you can't have all heavy and weighty stuff with no lightness. Right. So the opposite is true. Yeah. You almost see that a little bit in the king. He's very heavy, so to speak, but he doesn't really have many light moments. So that's kind of his flaw.
actually, I didn't really think about this until now, but so like one thing I didn't mention was the witch at the end of the story is killed by her own house because of the surging waters basically underneath her house destabilizes it. And she's crushed <laughs> by her own house. Her house uh, collapses on her and she's killed. And so you might say that the witch represents the pure weight idea. She's crotchety. She kind of hates everything. She's humorless. So you might see she kind of dies from her own weight, the consequences yeah. of her own weight in a way. I didn't even catch that, but yeah. And she's, you know, kind of a Satan figure, it seems like. Yeah. Especially with the, with the snake motif, especially. Oh, yeah. I guess one thing I thought of in terms of the likeness motif was viewing it purely in a bad light which I do think it's predominantly cast in a bad light in the story, is the kind of likeness she experiences kind of reminds me of the vapidness that is easy for people, especially in kind of modern Western society, to fall mm -hmm. into and to experience where we're kind of afraid to experience the weight or the gravity of things to really like fully face and contemplate, for example, death or the meaning of life or like why we suffer, especially in the age of, you know, social media and so forth is I think we're addicted to lightness. We're addicted yeah. to pushing away anything that might force us to reflect on a deeper level or to encounter the weightier things of life. But everything has to be a meme or a funny video or a distraction at all times. That's kind of one way I think we could look at the, at the lightness is an inability to experience the profundity or like the deep meaning of anything. Like the princess fails to even be able to understand or really encounter or engage with the love of the prince or the sacrifice of the prince. You're right. It is predominantly cast in more of a negative light. My mind took me to them kind of counterbalancing each other. But again, I think there's a there's a, a specific type of lightness that describes the princess as having and that particular type of lightness is not a good thing. And I agree. I, you know, you come across people like that all the time. And like you were saying, especially in like modern society, people who just they're, they're afraid to engage with the deeper questions of life or the weightiness of life because it just seems too hard. So they just kind of turn off the switch and they just try to keep themselves in that superficial place. And, and I've even experienced that before. I've been with people or someone where maybe I, I try to have a vulnerable moment with them or, you know, try to express maybe something a little more weighty and it get, kind of gets laughed off or yeah just like the princess giggles off anything like that in the story like just oh what are you talking about you know well uh, ha, ha ha we can't go there like yeah i'm just saying sure with spiritual and religious questions i think the average yeah. the average person kind of it's like oh that's just too highfalutin and abstract and blah they kind, yeah. of kind of wave it away as oh it's just it's too again abstract or ethereal as a kind of way to not want to have to think about it you always have to find a way to justify where you're gonna stay with your thinking and with your spirit you know so just to excuse it off like it's just too up in the clouds and oh spiritual thing you know let's get down to route like you create ways to justify not engaging with certain aspects of, of life. And I think in reality, it just comes from a fear because you don't know what's going to be waiting for you. And, and not to say that me and that I'm perfect with that. I mean, I think everyone to some degree or another has fears, certain areas of life that they're afraid to go dive into, you know, so we compartmentalize and kind of stay with where we're comfortable and what feels safe.
I think especially if you haven't been raised or you haven't, you've never had a habit of thinking about deeper questions or spiritual things or anything. You just, I, I don't think you even know where to begin with that. It's kind of a, it's like a kind of a door into an unknown space, especially if all you know is kind of living in more of the here and now. And it is what it is. My life in front of me. I don't think beyond that. <laughs> and that's it. You know? Also, this is just kind of a random thought, but it kind of makes me think of a platonic from the philosopher Plato picture of reality versus a, a more modern secular way of picturing reality. So for Plato, the day-to-day -day sensory experience aspect of life was viewed as a shadowy thing, as flinting, ethereal, transient shadow. And for him, it was spiritual realm, the realm of the forms or the good with a capital G as God for Plato, that source of being from which all things flow. That was the more concrete thing. But in the modern view, it, it's, that's kind of the opposite, is people tend to think of spiritual or religious questions and, or philosophical questions as, oh, this very shadowy and ethereal and hard to get a grip on. And the real stuff, the more concrete stuff, is this day-to-day -day stuff. Yeah. It was interesting how Plato and I think the Christian church largely pictured reality as the day-to-day -day stuff as this fleeting shadowy stuff, but the, the eternal stuff, as Paul says in one of his letters, um, what is seen is temporary, but the unseen is eternal. We should think of the eternal things. Modernity and trying to ignore that really tried to emphasize, no, the real stuff is just the stuff right in front of us. That other yeah. stuff is shadowy. Yeah, and it, but you look back, you know, in the Plato's day and almost all of history before the maybe the last hundred years, it's like people lived very hard lives. You know, they didn't have all the luxuries that we have today in, in modern society. It was kind of brutal in a lot of ways. And, and so they couldn't fall back on comforts of this world. So they were almost more for, forced to engage with the deeper questions and, and what what's beyond this life, what's beyond the here and now. Whereas today, especially in like the US, we are very comfortable. You know, we have anything and everything to distract us as far as entertainment, social media, we don't think about, you know, we have all our basic needs taken care of, you know, we're living in a society that's able to distract from the bigger questions. I mean, that is what we are living in. You don't have to engage with the deep questions to feel secure because you have you have all of these luxuries and all all of this material stuff that can make you feel secure and feel comfortable. You know, so yeah, I, I, I also think the obsession, the kind of unhealthy obsession with politics, is part of that as well. Where I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people kind of idolize politics, whether they realize it or not. Where they yes. I feel like I've seen that. It kind of going, be, it, yeah. It kind of, <laughs> it kind of becomes their religion, or like their their political team mm -hmm. becomes their religion. And for them, the most kind of quote unquote profound thought they have is about policy or the president or something like that, as if like the thing of ultimate significance is partisan politics. When, when again, even that is not that it's not important, but in the ultimate scheme of things, it's a fleeting, shadowy thing. And I think it's important to prioritize things by their weight, by their gravitas, you know, and politics should never be at the top of that totem pole. Yeah. And maybe this just is because I'm jaded with the whole political thing, like especially the bipartisan aspect of it. You know, I just I have I've gotten so fed up with that. I don't even like partake 
anymore, but you do see people. Two people is... taken of a divine nature. Hashtag fear. <laughs> you see people who they do, they, they're almost obsessed with politics. Like it is the thing, man. Like there's, that's like their world. Every, you know, everyone gravitates to something, right? This is kind of going off topic a little bit, but man, it's so true. The, the more I observe people and observe myself, I didn't really know when people told me growing up, everyone worships something. I'm like, okay, I kind of get it, but all right, whatever, you know, but the older I've gotten, the more I've realized it's so true. It doesn't matter if you're like religious or not religious or Hindu, Buddhist, Christian, Jewish. It's like the human condition that we need something outside ourselves to make us feel significant. And everyone has their thing. And I have my things that I constantly have to fight against each day and try to, to make it Christ every day. And, and I fail <laughs> a lot, you know, so I'm drawn to things too. It's hard. I don't blame it. I'm not trying to knock people for doing that. It's just, it's so true. You yeah. know, we always need to be reminded of that. Yeah. yeah. I like the, the late um, existentialist theologian, Paul Tillich. He described one's faith as one's quote unquote ultimate concern. So like whatever one's ultimate concern is, is one's faith and one's God. Yeah. And it's just so dangerous and so easy to fall into again, like you said, especially in our society and our culture to make one's ultimate concern transient politics or career or whatever. Yeah. As opposed to something of more cosmic significance. And the thing is when you make, when you put first things first, I think, when you, when you try to put God or spiritual matters first, it's not as if that other stuff ceases to matter. It just, it finds its proper place. Yes. And you're able to see it's it. Right, you're, and, it's rightly ordered. Exactly. Exactly. So it's not, it's not a dichotomy. Yeah. It's just about, yeah, rightly ordering our concerns. Yes. Uh, it's not about ne totally neglecting a particular concern. Yeah. So Ben, maybe let me just tell you what I felt while reading this part of The Light Princess, and you can maybe tell me why I was feeling this way. <laughs> How about that? Tell me you're about better, your childhood. You're, you're better at in interpreting what I'm feeling. All right, Ben? Be my uh, psychologist or psych... I don't even know. Okay. So you know, obviously, I, I like all of George McDonald's writings, and I like all the aspects of the story, but... Man, when my what really started tugging at my heartstrings was the whole sequence of the prince starting from when he requests to die to the king. He goes to the king with it, with his offer to say, I will be the one who sacrifices myself all the way till the princess saves him at the end and cries over him. But there was something about the nonchalance of the king and the princess as the prince is walking this unbelievably tough journey into death. It reminds me of Christ's journey almost when he's going to the cross. Like he knows he's going to die. The prince. Yeah. Oh yeah. Very much. His, I very much think the prince is a, is a Christ figure. Yeah. At the end. Yeah. Yeah. The way McDonald writes the prince. Uh, McDonald says before the prince went to the king, he made up his mind to not be, uh, what's the word? Uh, sentimental. Not be sentimental about what he's about to do. To just be matter of fact about it. Mm -hmm. And that takes so much courage, right? 
you're not you're doing something that is extremely brave and is an extreme uh, act of love and and he's he's trying to keep a straight face the whole time and just do it because he knows it's what he needs to do it's born from love but he's not trying to make it more to other people he's not trying to show that to the king or the princess i mean what courage right it's one thing to do something so honorable like that it's another thing to not play it up you know what i mean to just go about it and no one knows the gravity of what you're doing. The king doesn't care. The princess doesn't care until the end. And you see him just being matter of fact with it and just going through his duties. So just the courage of the prince and it just being born from this pure love. I don't know. It tugged at my heartstrings as I was reading that. I was like, oh, my goodness, especially when the prince is drowning and he's like trying to confess his love to the princess at the very end. He kind of gives in and says, you know, I'm willing to tell the princess how I feel and the quotes that Ben read earlier. She's still not paying any attention to him. It's like, it's crazy. Yet he goes forward with it. And it was just an awesome picture of what love looks like. I think we forget what love actually looks like. And I think sometimes we don't even get it when we're reading. It's in the Bible and it's in a lot of things. We're so used to what the Bible says that we don't hear it maybe as well i mean it's there in the scriptures and when people talk about it as a thing we don't really get it but i when it's cushioned in a story like this in a fairy tale and you see it played out within a story within a character it's like all of a sudden it comes to life for me oh my goodness that's what a sacrificial love looks like and it was just it's like a beautiful thing and there's something about it being a part of a story you're reading. You're not just being told the prince is loving, you're seeing it played out. And I don't know, it was just the contrast of his devotion and his love and his sacrifice and their nonchalance about the whole thing, yet he's unwavering with doing his duty. I don't know, there's something about that. I was like, oh my goodness. That's what just really packed the punch for me at the end of the story and kind of put Light Princess at the top of the list of the fairy, the stories I've read by George MacDonald. So I don't know if you felt the same way at the end, Ben. I'm sure you did. Oh, I mean, yeah. It's just... Yeah, for sure. And like, I mean, again, there's there's definitely a Christological theme there. Christ obviously being the paradigm of that kind of love. Uh, Jesus's passion, right? His journey to the cross was also one in which... While we were yet sinners. Right. While the king and princes were yet oblivious, right? Yeah. His, fr his friends abandoning him. You know, the soldiers mocking him. Yeah. But just resolute in the, the completely, the radically non-transactional, unconditional work of love. It's not, yeah, it's it's not based on what the king thinks or the king giving a pat on the back for what he's doing. It's not even, it's not even based on the princess's even liking of him. It's crazy. Like the, the princess doesn't even pay attention to him and he stays the course of love. Yeah, and again, it just occurred to me just thinking about this just now again that it also illustrates how not only is love radically true love radically non-transactional and unconditional but it's also essentially a work it's a thing that you do right like you're saying you yes. unsentimental about it he's like this is just a the work that i have to do as opposed to a thing i have to feel or a sense yes. a sentiment i have to force myself to have yeah. And I think especially, again, talking about the society that we live in and the culture that we live in, it's all about feelings. It's all about you. It's all about and your comfort. contract as well. Everything is a contract. Marriage is, marriage is a contract rather than a covenant. Everything has escape clauses. 
Yes. And I just, man, when I was reminded of what true love looks like, it hits you like a ton of bricks because, you know, none of us love love that way. (laughs) I know. Well, you just you realize, wait, I really enjoyed and some people made fun of this a little bit, but I really enjoyed the uh, I think it was Anglican, maybe pastor who spoke at the royal wedding recently with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle talking about love and, and and he's saying that the type of love that christ shows is the love that changes the world the love that's stronger than death oh, it's 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 so, something that we so need reminding of because it brings so much hope and the little passage that you read ben that um i, I think it was on the gold tablet in the story that they found talking yeah, about I, how I it, bring that up again yeah, yeah so what, what it said this, was uh, uh death alone from death can save love is death and so is brave Love can fill the deepest grave. Love loves. There it is. Love loves on beneath the wave. There it is. Love is the most powerful thing in the universe. That sort of love, it goes further down than death. Nothing, it's like unstoppable, you know? Yeah. Nothing trumps that sort of love. Real love. Nothing trumps it. Yeah. It's very um, hopeful. Yeah, so kind of related to that as well in terms of themes in the story was, for me, there seemed to be a kind of baptismal theme or metaphor going on with how the, the water is the thing that can restore weight. And it's, yeah. it's only through the death by water that health and weight can be restored. So like Jesus refers to his death as a baptism, for example, mm-hmm. in the Gospels. Yeah, so I saw that kind of idea of it. If, when you enter the baptismal waters, that's what can begin to restore your weight, right? Can it restore you back to hell? Yeah, and I didn't also, even think about that. And also with the waters, it made me think of the prophecy in Isaiah prophesying what will happen when the Messiah comes, when the Lord restores creation. It says that the in that day, right, the, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Mm-hmm. That really jumped out at me. Uh, I'll reread the passage at the end when it talks about the what happens after the princess cries, where it says the, the princess burst into a passion of tears and fell on the floor, ends up crying if her life was spent now. And a rain came on such as had never been seen in that country. The sun shone all the time, and the great drops which fell straight to the earth shone likewise. The palace was in the heart of a rainbow. It was a rain of rubies, sapphires, emeralds, and topazes. The torrents poured from the mountains like molten gold, and so forth. So that that just kind of made me think of that image in Isaiah of the kind of regenerating waters of the glory of God filling the earth and as a result of the baptismal death of the prince or of Jesus. Yeah, that's a great parallel. There's something something in the water, right? As Carrie Underwood would say. <laughs> Carrie Underwood, the, the greatest theologian of our generation. <laughs> I think that's a name of one of her songs. It's about baptism, uh, but it's so true water brings life yeah so if you if you listeners have not read or listened to the audiobook of the light princess you you definitely should and that might be like a good introduction to george mcdonald you know we've talked we've mentioned him a lot in the last few episodes since we started this it's an easy Um, read it's a quick read easy but it's a profound and beautiful and funny read Yes, that's what I mean. It's easy and it's quick, but it will give you a great taste for George MacDonald. And you know what? You don't have to be a kid to enjoy fairy tales, okay? It doesn't matter where the story takes place, is fictional, non-fictional. If it is a true and beautiful story with deep spiritual and human themes in it, it's for anybody. And George MacDonald is for anybody and everybody. 
And I think a lot of times it's cool to engage with the fairy tale setting because it kind of brings you back to childhood. And there's, I think there's a very profound spiritual things that are happening when you're a kid. I think we're almost, we come from childhood to return to childhood in a way. God and Christ, when he was on the earth, invited the kids, you know, and, and talked about childlike faith. And it's almost not an ignorance, but it's just a, it's, it's a confidence that God loves us, you know, so we can, when you're a kid, you don't, you don't carry the weight of the world on your shoulders like we start to do once we get older. You know, we start to carry a lot of weight. And so there's a beautiful thing about being a kid in the spiritual sense, being childlike. And um, I, I think whenever we're engaging with our youth and our innocence, our innocence when we were a kid, it's a good thing. I think when a lot of these deeper spiritual truths are cushioned within a fairy tale, I mean, what a great combination. Yeah. And again, go, returning to the, the broader theme of the story of the, the lightness and the weight, what you're saying about childhood versus adulthood and innocence and so forth is something I found in my own experience, and I'm sure you can relate, Brett, is it's only when you enter those waters of adulthood, when you kind of regain your weight, that you're able to re-experience the lightness of childhood, but in a deeper and more profound way. Yes. So it's like you don't lose your lightness when you gain your gravity, but yeah you gain, again, lightness in its right order. And it, the lightness itself becomes a more meaningful and beautiful thing than it was before you had that weight. Perfectly said, yes. It's a more profound childlikeness once Christ leads you back to the waters of spiritual childhood, because he is our father. He's our um, Abba. He, we are his children and, and he wants the best for us, you know, and the spiritual journey is one in a lot of ways, relearning how to be a kid again, again, not light and superficial childhood, but a more deep, meaningful, but resting in the arms of our heavenly father and the trust that we are loved creatures so that we don't have to carry the weight of the world that we were never meant to carry on our shoulders. And I think this spiritual life done in its proper form and our walk with Christ, it's slowly taking the weight off our shoulders. I think we grow up, we put a bunch of weight on on our backs it crushes us <laughs> and then we're he slowly but surely teaches how to walk and slowly takes the load off of our shoulders onto himself yeah exactly and what exactly you're saying that's part of why at the end of the story the thing about how he had to still kind of help her and teach her how to walk that made me think of the kind of spiritual journey of sanctification after you mm -hmm. come back to christ you're not perfect you've passed through the waters you know and you've, re you've regained your gravity in principle but there's still a process there so i'll read again really quick what it says so it says of the princess it was a long time before she got reconciled to walking mm -hmm. but, the, but the pain of learning it was quite counterbalanced by two things either of which would have been sufficient consolation the first was that the prince himself was her teacher mm -hmm. but jesus himself is the one that teaches us and picks us back up and the second, that she could tumble into the lake as often as she pleased. Right? Now you're in that restored relationship with God. and Fall into his arms and wade into the ocean that is God. Still, she preferred to have the prince jump in with her. And the splash <laughs> they, they made was nothing to the splash they made now. Yes. Because God's constantly taking us to deeper, more profound, more beautiful things. You know, It's this mystery of kind of walking back into where we came from, but walking further and deeper in a different direction at the same time. It's But the bottom line is God is just taking us into deeper experiences of his love, a deeper layer of his love, a deeper layer of his love, deeper and deeper.
because that's what we're made for. We're made to be loved and to know that we are loved until that sinks in and it's in process for all of us until that fully, fully sinks in. We're not going to be experiencing the fullness of life. We are love creatures. We just got to slowly realize that, that how, man, how deeply loved we are. I know a lot of us don't believe that. It's hard to believe some days, but if that starts to, if there's a little crack in our soul and that starts to get in, man, that can be, that is life-changing because that's all we want. That's all we want. As DC Talk would say, we all want to be loved. Yeah. We all want just a little respect. <laughs> it's true. Tell it's me true. what's wrong with that. <laughs> oh yeah somebody tell me come on dc talk we need a reunion tour we really do yeah the, the, cru the cruise thing is not sufficient you guys need to like no. make another album we need a world we need a new album and a world tour yeah anyway but any final thoughts i think that about sums it up for me yeah for sure awesome fairy tale short story guys george mcdonald definitely check it out and then hopefully that will lead you to uh george mcdonald's other works which i very much hope to talk on in future episodes indeed all right take care theologizers it's been real we'll see you soon theologizers this is the theobros podcast <laughs>